Good morning, I'm Rick. Uh, I have the privilege of serving on a parking team. And today's scripture reading is from Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11 from the NIV. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. This is God's word. Thank you, Rick. Philippians is our field guide to joy. And there's this old saying, we preach best what we need to learn most. I suppose that means it's going to be a good sermon because today's about humility and I need to learn it. Uh, but I suspect that you do as well. So let's pray together and let's ask the Holy Spirit to teach us and transform us today. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And as we open it up, we pray that you would open our hearts. In this beautiful passage which describes the humble work of your son, I pray that we would be in awe, I pray that we would be transformed by it, and I pray that it would shape how we treat one another, the posture we have towards those around us. I pray that we would be thinking about our marriages and friendships and children and colleagues and co-workers and neighbors as we think about humility. And as we do, we pray that we would experience the power of your spirit leading us, guiding us, changing us. And for anyone here who does not yet know you and has never trusted in the finished work of Jesus, we pray that today they would, that they would believe on the name of Jesus and be saved. We pray all these things in his name. And everyone said, amen. If you think humility is a good thing, then your worldview has been shaped by the Bible. In fact, for much of history, humility was actually viewed as not a strength, but a weakness. 2,000 years ago, the concept of humility received very little attention in Greek and Roman culture. It's a word that barely would show up in the dictionary, so to speak. A word that was almost unknown to the classical Greek world, one of the most refined and remarkable cultures of history. Intellectually, 
Humility was despised. There was no good cause for it, no good reason. There was no incentive to be humble. There was no soil from which humility would grow. It wouldn't benefit you in life. Now, even today, though the impact of Christianity has led our culture to value humility more, it is rarely talked about or pursued in the journey of greatness. Here a quote from the book Status Anxiety about Modern Life. The author says, The ability to accumulate wealth is prized as proof of the presence of at least four cardinal virtues. Creativity? Oh, we value that. Courage? Definitely. Intelligence? Absolutely. Stamina? For sure. The presence or absence of other virtues, like humility, for example, rarely holds attention. There are few virtues as counterculture as humility. And yet there are few virtues more necessary for the church to display today. The world needs to see a humble church. This is more than just about culture. This is about our character. And that is why humility is spoken of all over the Bible. In the Old Testament, God says to the people of Israel in 2 Chronicles 7, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And in the New Testament, the apostle Peter states what is at stake When it comes to humility, he simply says, God opposes the proud in 1 Peter 5, but he gives grace to the humble. Friends, the consequences of pride are staggering. But what also about the rewards of humility? Though humility is often misunderstood, rarely shown, and certainly undervalued in our culture, this text before us today calls us to rethink the importance of humility. I was struck when I read this sentence from Jonathan Edwards, one of the great theologians in North America in history, and he said this, the pleasures of humility. First of all, who says that? Nobody talks about that. Like if humility got Google reviews, it would all be like one star, right? But no, he says, the pleasures of humility are really the most refined, inward, and exquisite delights in the world. (laughs) Whoever talks about humility like that? And yet when you look at what the Bible says about humility, you come to see what he's talking about. And that is precisely what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 2. The letter from Paul to the Philippian church is about joy. The joy that you experience if you follow Jesus. A joy that not only exists but can actually increase even in the face of adversity. Coming from Paul who's been wrongfully imprisoned and separated from this congregation that he loves. He's writing to them and writing to us all about humility. Why is humility so vital? How does it promote our joy and where does it come from? Philippians chapter 2 is perhaps one of the most famous 
explanations of humility and how it's connected to promoting joy in our lives. And from it, I want us to note three things. We must embrace three things about humility if we are going to experience joy. And the first is this, the practice of humility. We must embrace humility as a practice. Now, this all sounds great until you try it. Like everyone in the room is probably like, yeah, humility is all right. It's probably pretty good, but try it. Go to work tomorrow amidst all your colleagues and coworkers and say, hey, how can I prefer you before myself today? <laughs> or try, what does humility look like on the 101 southbound at rush hour? <laughs> try humility then. Like, this is where the rubber meets the road. I'm talking about when somebody cuts you off without signaling using the indicator light. Some of you are like, oh my gosh, yes. But here's the irony. When you're cut off, you are livid. But then five minutes later, you do the same thing and you're like, hey, why are they so upset? But what if there was a people who were like, go on, come on in. There's plenty of room on the left side. <laughs> See, humility sounds great until you try it. But I want you to note, Paul makes two points. Humility is possible, and it is also practical. He says in verse 1 and 2, Therefore, this is the reason why you can talk realistically and practically about humility. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. He's saying it is possible, friends. And he does that by using rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question has very obvious answers. Is water wet? Yes. Is fire hot? Yes. Will California have a drought? Of course. It's a rhetorical question. He says, is there any encouragement in Jesus? Yes, absolutely. No matter how bad your sin is, no matter how broken you are, no matter how horrible your past is, you can be saved from sin and saved from eternal separation from God and totally forgiven. That's good news. Is there any comfort from his love? Yes, absolutely. He has adopted us and accepted us. Makes us courageous. Is there any participation in the Holy Spirit? Of course. When you believe in Jesus, God makes his home in you by the Spirit who supernaturally empowers us to live as God has called us to live according to his word. The comfort of the Holy Spirit we can experience in our lives. Is there any affection and mercy? Yes, yes, yes. Through these rhetorical questions, he's giving you all the reasons why you can fulfill his practical instruction. Here's why that matters. There are times when we hear a passage teaching about something like humility, a particular virtue. And it is very easy to write it off and say, well, I, I think that's something that suits other people more easily, but as for me, it doesn't really come as naturally, so I get a free pass. 
Well, I've got my Irish temper, so, you know, humility doesn't come natural to me, so I get a free pass. But humility would, you know, works great for you. Or perhaps we say, yeah, humility sounds nice, but you don't know the experiences I've had in the church. There's a lot of other prideful people in the church, and therefore I do not need to be humble. Oftentimes we make excuses, we give reasons thinking like, there's no way that this is possible. And Paul is saying, yes, it is. Don't look at the lack of humility in others as an excuse for a lack of humility in your own life. I say this because oftentimes we, we look around and we might even complain about what we see in the church. Well, I don't like, you know, I, I don't like these people. I don't like how these things are done. I don't like their attitude. Okay, be the change that you want to see in the church. Why don't you take the first step in humility? Because after all, it is possible. It is possible. If there's any encouragement in Jesus, if there's any consolation and comfort in the Holy Spirit, affection, mercy, and love, then this means you can practice humility. And it is a practice. Look at verse 3 and 4. He says, what does that look like? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Now that practical instruction does begin with a warning. What can kill off humility in our lives? What can kill humility in a church? He says it plainly. Selfish ambition and conceit. Selfish ambition, the idea that you basically make church all about yourself. You make it all about what you can get out of it. Conceit is keeping up appearance through self-occupation. These are all evidences, not of humility, but of pride. And living in pride is acting like God's enemy. And pride will kill a church. Pride will, will kill your life spiritually. Practically, there are, there are many ways in which we kill off humility or at least make it harder for humility to grow. Let me just give a few examples. One of the things we often see is that can kill off humility is constant criticism. Just looking around, just criticizing everyone and everything. I was reminded, having lived in England for five years, of Pride and Prejudice. Shout out, Jane Austen who I was um, exposed to many, many years ago through the made-for-TV Pride and Prejudice on VHS, I might add, <laughs> in which the main character, Mr. Darcy, is described as a man who never looks at another but to see a blemish. I hear that phrase and I think, how often does that happen in the church? I don't like the worship. I don't like the volunteer. I don't like the people in my community group. I certainly don't like the preacher. I don't like how they pray. The prayer was too long. The prayer was too short. The music was too loud. The music's too stop. There's not enough liturgy. There's too much expression. It's like in the name of all that is good, just stop. <laughs> and yet some of us, we come in, we enter into the space with just constant criticism. Listen, friend, if that is you, it will kill off humility. But another practice that can kill off humility is not only constant criticism, but constant comparison. 
Why don't I have what they have? How come I wasn't treated the same way? How come I don't get what was given to them? See, these are all subtle yet very real evidences of selfish ambition and conceit, a preoccupation with ourselves. But on the other hand, Paul says, Let, do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Rather, consider others above yourselves. Now, what does Paul mean when he says consider other people above yourselves? Please note that Paul is not advocating for total self-neglect. Okay, I guess I won't take care of myself, won't brush my teeth because I want to put other people above my... No, no, no. Brushing your teeth is a way of serving other people, believe me. <laughs> Maybe a little stick of gum at church every now and again. It's an act of service. He's not saying beat yourself up or neglect yourself, you know, skip a meal. That's not what he's talking about. As the phrase goes, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's esteeming others. It's, it's a reprioritization of your life that gives a larger share to the needs of others. To put it another way, humility is looking at other people without a constant reference to your own need. So that when you're in a community, you're not always going, what am I going to get out of this? What are they going to bring to the table? But instead saying, what can I pour into this? What can I bring to the table? How can I serve in this community? I love it when I hear men and women, especially when they're like new to the church and they're like, how can I serve? I'm like, that's amazing because that's an evidence of your transformation. How can I serve in this community? That's what humility asks. Friends, this is so important because the alternative is pride. And pride opposes God. So this is huge, but it's also very down to earth and practical. Let me just give you four habits that promote humility that you could practice on a daily basis. First of all, when you come into contact with other people, affirm and honor the good that God has given to them. You don't always have to compare. You don't always have to critique. If somebody shares a blessing in your life, God has given them something, you affirm it and you honor it. Praise God. When somebody tells you like, hey, we found a new home and we're paying even cheaper rent, you don't respond by saying, well, lucky for you, my rent's terrible. Like, okay, well, share my praise report with somebody else. <laughs> Honor, affirm, praise the Lord. Secondly, immediately pray that God would bless them more. That is so good to hear about what God is doing in your life. Could I pray for you that God would bless you even more? Third, support them if you're able. It's like, hey, is there any way that I can use my resources, my time, my, um, my abilities to help you and to serve you? How can I support you? And fourth, and this is easier said than done, gladly take the lesser place to do so. How often do we hear opportunities arise and our instinct is to think, nah, that's kind of below me. Nobody says that out loud, okay? Nobody says it out loud. But really, you're like, oh, you know, a service opportunity. Maybe it's in the church. Maybe it's to your neighbor, someone in your community group. And you're like, oh, sorry, I'm just so busy. 
But really what you're thinking is like, uh, yeah, I don't really do that. That's kind of like a lower rung responsibility. <laughs> but humility says, I will gladly take the lesser place to do so. Friends, this is what needs to be practiced in the church today. It is so countercultural. Paul says it's possible. It is also practical. It has everything to do with the way that you view and treat one another. And here's the beautiful thing, friends. If, if I consider you above me, and if you consider others above yourself, we will have a community where everyone is looked up to and no one is looked down upon. And wouldn't that be beautiful? But you might say, okay, I get it. We need to embrace this practice of humility. But I look around and I don't see a whole lot of humility. I don't see many good examples of that. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up because that's the second truth we need to embrace is the pattern of humility. So Paul says, here's a practice. You guys need to practice this. But secondly, there is a pattern. There is an example. There is a model for you to follow. And it doesn't come from your neighbor. This is huge because we're often looking in culture for examples. There was a book that came out in the UK called Anti-Hero. It's not a Christian book. Secular book. And the author's big point is this. That much of the political and economic craziness that we see, simply in his mind, comes from the fact that we value the wrong kinds of traits in our leaders. The traits of leadership that we often value that'll get you to the top is expertise, control, and charisma. But he says these traits, yeah, they can get you to the top. They can also destroy people's lives. His point is what we need are leaders who listen, leaders who serve, leaders who are humble. Imagine that. And Paul says there is no greater pattern to model your life after than Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate model of humility. And so he says in verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He says, if you're looking for a model, if you're looking for an example, look to Jesus. Sure, you may not see it modeled perfectly in the world or even in the church, but that's why Paul is continually reminding us that your go-to exemplar is Jesus. Jesus defines humility. Jesus put humility on the map. He is our model. He brought the word to the dictionary, so to speak. And when he did, he took status to a different level. And according to Jesus... The way up is actually the way down. He describes how and in what way Jesus is our model in verses 6 through 8. Jesus who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is a remarkable passage on the servanthood of Jesus Christ. 
And it's important to note a few theological points before we look at the implications. The Son of God is a part of the, the triune God that we worship, Father, Son, and Spirit. But in a moment in history, he came into our world and took on flesh. And when he did, please note that Jesus did not give up his deity. Rather, he gave up his privilege. Jesus did not, in coming to this world and being born, he did not give up his deity. He didn't become less God. He simply switched containers. To use a simple analogy, if you go home today and take the milk out of your fridge in the carton and then you pour it in the glass, what happened? The milk didn't change. The milk remained the same, but it switched containers. When the Son of God came into our world, he didn't become less God. He switched containers, and it was into a lowly container. He became a servant. So let's be clear. Jesus did not reduce himself. He restrained himself. He gave up his rights without giving up his essence. That is what Paul is teaching us about Jesus. And you see this in the way in which he ministered and lived his life. Though Jesus is fully God and fully man, he never used his power to his own advantage. Isn't that incredible? When you read through the gospel accounts of Jesus and the miracles and the works that he performed, he never used his power for himself. Which I always find so radical and surprising. Because if I had that kind of power, I would always use it for myself. Car's not working, bam, healed. <laughs> Sleeping on a boat like Jesus, bam, there's a pillow for me. <laughs> but when you look at the life of Jesus, never once did he use his power for his own advantage. It was always for the sake of others. And in that, we now get more clarity on what we're talking about when we talk about humility. Because there is such a thing as false humility. We often in our culture, when we think of humility, we just think of kind of a self-deprecating modesty. Like if someone's like, hey, can you use your talent to come help me? And you're like, no, I know. That's embarrassing. I'm not really that talented. Listen, that's not humility. Can you imagine Jesus? People coming to him and say, Jesus, you're the son of God. Will you heal? He's like, oh, stop. I mean, I'm not really the Messiah. Well, I guess I am, you know. <laughs> Jesus, oh, we love your miracles. Oh, stop, you guys. <laughs> sure, I've been known to dabble in miracles a little bit, you know. <laughs> Listen, that is, humility is not this like self deprecating modesty. Humility is not denying your gifts. Humility is using your gifts for something other than yourself. That's the teaching of Philippians chapter 2. It's also worth mentioning that humility does not mean that you don't share the truth. See, here's what I've discovered, and this may be particularly amongst the younger people that I talk to. There's this idea that you can't speak anything authoritatively because that might not be humble. Now, to be clear, if you speak it like a jerk, yeah, that's not good. But speaking the truth in and of itself 
is not prideful. In fact, if you have an opportunity to tell the truth and you don't, that is pride. See, there's this false, uh, false humility like, you know, oh, I don't really want to say the truth because like, oh, that might come off as arrogant. Well, sure, don't be arrogant, but by all means, share the truth. Jesus is the truth. Jesus preached the truth. So when we look at Jesus as the model of humility and his life as the pattern for humility, we learn that humility does not mean beating yourself up. And humility does not mean that you don't share the truth. Humility is not denying the truth. Humility is not denying your gifts. It's using them for the sake of others. It means all that I have I'm to think of ways in which I can use that for the sake of another. Which is so important because we live in this age in which so many are concerned about upward mobility. Jesus went in all the opposite directions. Down he went from heaven to earth to become a man. Down he went from the ranks of humanity all the way to become a servant though he was a king. Down he went from life to death, even to the death on a cross where he put himself in the most vulnerable place of ultimate weakness, bearing a criminal's punishment, even though he was perfectly innocent. Why? For you and for me. To die in our place for our sins as a sacrifice. And so Paul says he was obedient to death. He lived out this life of humility and servanthood all the way to death, even the death of a cross. Jesus could have done nothing. He could have looked at your life and done nothing. But instead, he did everything necessary to save you. That is powerful stuff. When we often think of power, we tend to relate it to glory. But here we're reminded of how power can be seen in sacrifice. And we're told to reflect on this. We're told to, to have this, this mindset, have the same mindset that was in Christ Jesus. He's your model. He's your pattern. Here's why I think this is so key. We are surrounded on a daily basis by messages that are absolutely contrary to Philippians chapter 2. The ads you hear on the radio, the commercials you watch on TV, the statements you read on billboards, the advice you're often given by friends and coworkers is usually like, look out for yourself. You're number one. You deserve this. Have it your way. And you're like, why, yes. I should have it my way. What slogan is that? I don't know. It's like a hamburger or something. Like, I'm going to have it my way. And then that bleeds over into the way that you, you bring that attitude into your home. You're like, I've had a long day. Spouse, children, I want to have things my way. But then you clash up against another person who's been hearing that same message. You're like, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to have it my way. In contrast, Paul is saying you need to be intentional about what you're dwelling upon. And what is that? The, mind, the mindset of Christ Jesus. 
Because we are being surrounded by all these voices. My question for you and the question for me is, am I constantly reminding myself through prayer and fellowship and reading God's word, the mindset of Jesus that you can take with you into the world? I was reminded of William Wilberforce, who many of you might know, whose efforts in large part were responsible for ending the slave trade in England. He worked in the Houses of Parliament, but I learned many know about his, his work in, in politics and the abolition movement, but a lot of people don't study his devotional life. Every day, he would walk one mile from his home to the Houses of Parliament through Hyde Park, and when he would, he would memorize Scripture. He used his commute to memorize Scripture because he knew in a matter of moments, he was going to be in the halls of power where values and, and statements were going to circle around him that in many ways would be contrary to the gospel. So he needed to arm himself. He had to have the mindset of Christ Jesus. And so he'd use his commute to have that mindset, remember scripture, so that he went in there, he could display humility in a culture of pride. So I ask again, what are we doing? to remind ourselves of the mindset of Christ Jesus. We must embrace the pattern of humility, saying Jesus is my pattern. I don't know what it means for you to put a post-it note on your steering wheel, you know, as you're cutting someone off on the 101, you look at that, have this mindset be in you, and you're like, oh, right, right. Indicator light, yes. Put it in your calendar so you get an alert throughout the day, like boo, boo, beep. It's like, have this mindset in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Like, do whatever you got to do. Memorize scripture. Remind one another. Pray for one another. We have to combat the messages that go against this by reminding ourselves of our perfect pattern of humility, the life of Jesus Christ. Amen? But it doesn't end there. The third practice that leads to joy is embracing the power of humility. We need to put it into practice. We need to look to Jesus as our pattern, but there's more. There is a power of humility. See, Paul's words here, which many believe is actually a hymn, the way in which he's writing this, this about Jesus is like a song. It's like a hymn, but it doesn't end with the cross, verse 9 through 11. Therefore, in light of Christ's humility, his sacrifice and suffering, the story continues, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus himself is the power the source we need for our humility, and it leads to exaltation. That is what Paul is saying. So let's be clear, friends. It is not an example that saves us. It is an event that saves us. This is at the heart of Christianity. If we just ended the sermon here and said, look to Jesus as an example, you would be bankrupt because you will never fully follow the example of Jesus. We have all failed. 
But it is not an example that saves us. See, that's what religiosity teaches you. If you just have some good examples to look to and try real hard to follow it, maybe someday you can reach salvation. That is religion. It is based on man's effort. That is not the gospel. According to the gospel, it is not an example that saves you. It is an event that saves you. And what is that event? It is the finished work of Jesus Christ through his death on the cross and his glorious resurrection. Believing in him is what saves you. And it's through him that you are then enabled to live a humble life. So just trying to follow the model of humility will not save you. Do not leave this church service just thinking, I'm just going to try a little harder in my own strength. No, no, no. Trusting in Jesus and by his power following his example is what we must attend to. And where does that lead you? Exaltation. With Christ, he not only died, he rose again. He is Lord. He is exalted. This is where humility ends up in God's economy. And notice, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Which is a crazy thought because even the, the most successful person in the world, the most successful person on the planet must one day bend the knee to Jesus. There's no greater name. Now, this does not imply that everyone will be saved. That's not what Paul is talking about when he says every mouth will confess that Jesus is Lord and every knee will bend. He is not saying that everyone will eventually be saved. What Paul is saying is this. Everyone, no matter what, will eventually, one way or another, acknowledge Jesus to be who he said he is. The question is, will it be with faith or resentment? See, right now in life, we have a choice. Jesus has died. He's risen again. This message goes out. Will you believe? If you believe and receive in Jesus, then one day when you breathe your last or when Jesus Christ returns, you will bend the knee with gladness because you've received him as Savior by faith. But if you continue to reject him, one day you will bow the knee and acknowledge that he is Lord, but it will be with resentment leading to eternal separation from him. But today, the choice is yours. Will you receive and believe? See, if you do, here's what the future looks like. That way down well, it actually ultimately, because of Jesus, it ends as a way up. Because of Jesus, the way down ends up being the way up. It leads to exaltation. Because of Jesus, the power of humility is that it leads to this exaltation. And what does exaltation mean for us? What does it mean that God exalts us? It means that we are forgiven. It means that we are made new. And it means that we are empowered. That's what it means. It means we are lifted up, we're cleansed from our sin, we're given new hearts, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. See, humility does not achieve these things, humility receives these things. If you humble yourself before God, He will lift you up. You will experience healing. And if we do this together, our community will experience healing. Marriages will experience healing. When a spouse 
repents of sin and puts Jesus first and humbles them, it brings healing into that marriage. When parents humble themselves and receive healing from Jesus, healing can come into that family. When churches, when men and women like us in Reality Ventura, when we humble ourselves before God, we acknowledge our sin and our failure and we confess that freely and receive His healing, we can experience it as a church. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And what happens? That mighty hand of God will then use you for his kingdom purposes. That's what's beautiful about this. Humility under the mighty hand of God positions us to be used by the mighty hand of God as an instrument for his purposes. Because in God's economy, a humble servant is a powerful servant. We don't need to, to be like the world in this, all this bravado and self-congratulations. No, in the kingdom of God, a humble servant is a powerful servant. So what must we do? How do we respond to a passage like this? Well, we repent, we receive, and we reflect. The first thing we must do, friends, is repent, which means a turning away from ourselves. See, humility before God means that there's no room for self-congratulation. So when you take communion today, which I will invite you to do so in a moment, you don't come up to the communion table and take the bread and the cup and say, I've done it. I'm pretty great. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, he didn't say, when you take the bread and take the cup, reflect on how great you are. That's not what he said. It's remember what I've done for you. It's all about turning away from ourselves. Repentance. We repent. But the way of humility is also about receiving. As we turn away from ourselves, we turn towards God and we receive his grace. We receive from him all that we need. We receive what we need for our marriages and our friendships and our community and our work. We receive his grace. And you know what happens? The remarkable happens. He lifts us up. If you don't believe me, believe the Bible. Matthew chapter 23. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 18, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Still don't believe me? James chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. One more. First Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And as he does, you get to reflect him to a lost and dying world. He picks you up, he empowers you, and he uses you for his wonderful purposes. See, the world says, look out for yourself. Jesus says, look out for others. The world says, live above the rest. Jesus says, live on behalf of the rest. The world says, get all you can. Jesus says, give all you can. The world says, reach for the stars. Jesus says, reach your neighbor. This is the way of humility. And to all of us, it is unnatural because it is the way of the supernatural. It is the work of God 
in you. See, friends, when we talk about humility, there's nothing that God expects from you that he does not also provide for you. So the message today is not try real hard to think like Jesus. He's saying you are united with Jesus by faith. So by his power, reflect him. If you're not yet a Christian today, humble yourself and receive his salvation. Humble yourself today and say, I can't save myself. Jesus, you're my savior. And for us as a church, humble ourselves and receive his power. Where do you want to see healing and strength? It might be in some of your marriages. Man, imagine what humility does in a marriage. Imagine what humility does amongst friends who are broken apart in a church and there's all this drama and discord. Man, when the first person takes the humble route, oh, it's the beginning of healing. Humble yourself before God. Receive his power and humble yourself before God and just receive his love. So many of us, we don't experience the full power of the Holy Spirit because we're trying to earn his love, not receive it. We're sitting there to ourselves like heavy heads thinking, oh, just, I, gotta, I gotta do more, I gotta do more. And the Lord's like, just stop. Receive. Turn away from yourself. Receive his grace. Receive from him today. And as we walk in humility, we radiate the beauty of Jesus. Humility is the joy of knowing that God's hand is with you and his heart is for you. He delights to show his power through humble service and he calls you. Will you receive from him that you might reflect him? I pray that we would. Let's pray right now that that would be so. Father, I pray that none of us would just be hearing this as some vague abstract idea, but a reality that you want us to receive. God, we pray for humble men and humble women in this church. We pray for humble marriages, humble parenting, humble children, humble singleness, humble friendships, humble coworkers, humble leaders and bosses and CEOs and students and teachers. But we know all of this can only happen if we humbly receive from you. So right now, Lord, we bow the knee. We say, you are Lord, you are Savior. We receive from you what we need for our own healing so that we might reflect you to this world. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would uproot pride in our heart that would keep us from receiving prayer, that would keep us from receiving your forgiveness, that would keep us from receiving from others. And I pray that you would give us a posture of heart this morning that is open, ready to receive by faith. And if there's anyone who does not yet know you, I pray that right now they would put their faith and trust in you and be saved today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.